So glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you have. And I mean, we knew it was happening, but Americans have greatly pulled back on spending. You know, as we face a time of perhaps 25% unemployment in the United States, Americans are going on a spending strike. The sales at restaurants and retailers that was just released by the federal government, by the Commerce Department, finds a decline of 16%, and that is a massive decline. It's the worst data in more than a generation and a half, and it's much worse than economists had predicted. But I don't think economists realized that people were making a conscious decision to hoard cash. As I shared with you a week or two ago, Americans are now saving, those that are working, are saving 13 cents of every dollar they make. And that's a lucky 13, far, far greater than what people were saving before this health emergency. And I think economists were expecting the savings rate to stay the same. The savings rate has gone up. And so what's a smart decision for you and me makes it tougher for businesses as we become more careful with every dollar we spend. The long-term benefit of that is fantastic. In the short term, it's really a problem for businesses that are trying to attract people in the doors. And listen to this. You know how I've talked about how nobody is interested in buying clothing? Well, listen to this drop. The decline in sales for clothing down 80%, 80%. I guess everybody's looked at their wardrobe and decided that they got plenty to get by with. As far as clothing people are buying, people are buying bathrobes, pajamas, uh, maybe leisure wear, and that's all. Nobody's buying anything else. That's why, as I think I related to you just recently, the sales on spring fashion and summer clothing for people who are into fashion, and if you can, or in a position you're employed, you can afford to buy or the lowest prices ever. Our son, certainly he's like me, not into fashion, but he has grown a whole lot in just a recent period of time. He's grown uh, to be about 5'9", and he's 14, and he started the school year at 5'2", and he's really filled out. All his clothes are too small for him, and I've been buying him new clothing at ridiculous prices. I mean, just massive discounts. And his wardrobe's pretty easy to buy at, at this age. So it's been something that's been very simple to do online. Electronics, sales down 61%. And, and you look at category by category, people are holding on to their money. And this is the right decision for us to make, even though it in the short term increases the pain for business 
the reality is that you and I don't know what our employment picture is going to look like, what our paychecks are going to look like. And so you need to be in a position to protect your wallet going forward. And that's exactly what people are doing. Now, the reason that people are doing this is because there's more worry about whether or not they're even going to be able to pay a variety of bills. I want to talk about that at a future time. Uh, as you post questions for me at clark.com slash ask, producers Kim and Joel are asking those questions for you. And Kim, you're up first. All right. Well, first today, I actually want to go back to a, a call or a listener question that we took earlier this week from Joe. He's the one who had written in because he had two concert tickets picked uh, purchased through Ticketmaster. He tried to do a chargeback with his bank and they told him, no, sorry, we're not responsible for third party merchants. And so we had reached out to him and just thought that sounded so weird and asked him to send in the letter that he got from his bank. And you and I have read that letter and his bank ought to be ashamed of itself. I mean, the the federal regulations on how a chargeback is handled are clear as could be. What happens with a chargeback once you've done one, that's where it gets fuzzy. But his right to do a chargeback, which was he was denied by his bank even being able to do a chargeback. And the rules are very clear. I'm reading right here that if you have a service not rendered, that is an automatic grounds to be able to dispute a charge on your credit card. The time limit is typically 60 days on that, but the bank did not cite that, and we don't know the original date of the charge for the event. But the reality is the bank violated the law, clear as day. And both the uh, the write-up on disputing credit charges at the FTC is very supportive of his position. And so he should file a complaint with the FTC at ftc.gov, but more importantly, at consumerfinance.gov, at the website of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Under the law that triggers... Uh, inquiry to the bank, they then have 30 days to explain why they did not feel they had to follow the law. That's my wording. (laughs) It would be different in how they would respond. But this kind of behavior from a bank at a time when the chips are down for a customer is beyond unacceptable. Joel, who do you have a question from? Clark Holly in Georgia wrote in. She says, Can you offer any advice to single moms that aren't receiving alimony and or child support right now and can't get in front of a judge because the courts are only taking emergency cases? My ex hasn't paid a dime in four months and my savings has been depleted, so what do I do? That is absolutely brutal. And ultimately, I mean, the remedies available to you once the courts reopen are going to be very slow in coming because the courts are going to be so backed up and I don't have a legal remedy for you. Is there anybody who is someone who is trusted by both of you who could speak to your former spouse and just talk about the needs for the funds 
for the child you share together. As far as the alimony, um, you, it's going to be hard to appeal to an ex-spouse's heart on that. But for the child, that should be something that you might be able to reach somebody's humanity on. And again, for you to be able to do that is not likely because of whatever history you have, but someone who knows you both and has maintained um, a good relationship with both of you would probably be the best person to be that messenger. Having said that, they may not be interested or willing to be that messenger. Kim? This is from Rondi in California. She says, my application for the PPP was accepted and I just got the money. I am very grateful. Since the lockdown has been going on longer than they thought it would, I'm in California. Can that money be used without penalty for longer than the two and a half months? I'd like to stretch it out over four to five months so that I make sure I still have money coming in, but I don't want to be penalized with the interest. So that is a great question. And there's possibilities that the regulations on the tight, it's not two and a half months, it's 60 days as the calculation period for loan forgiveness, for turning the loan into a grant. And that is something that is not practical for a lot of businesses, plus the strict requirement that the money overwhelmingly be used, 75%, for maintaining payroll. There are a lot of businesses that payroll is not anywhere near that percent of the business operation, and it doesn't help people maintain their business. As for now, you, under the regulations as they exist at this second that I'm speaking, the money has to be used for the eligible purposes in 60 days. So if you stretch it beyond 60 days, if the regulations don't change, only the portion that's used for eligible expenses during the first 60-day window would be eligible for forgiveness and turned into a grant. The remaining portion of the money would still be due and payable at a 1% interest rate in 24 months. So, uh, you know, I think the odds are getting stronger that the regulations on how and when the money has to be used will be loosened, will be made more business friendly. But, you know, I don't run the government, so it's only my belief, my hunch that that will happen. Joel? Clark Ben in Georgia says, my current 30-year mortgage since I refinanced three years ago is at a rate of 3.875. Now my lender is saying that I can qualify for a 3.375 mortgage rate. Is it worth it to refinance again for only a half a point difference? Usually not. It's a question of what closing costs you'd pay and how long it would take to make back those closing costs. Half a point it would be really hard to follow my um, simple rule, which is that you get a payback in 30 months for the closing costs you would have. And squeezing out the closing costs over 30 months with only a half point drop would be very unlikely. So let's talk about what I would like you to be doing. Rates are extremely low right now. And you should shop lenders and shop specifically lenders that are offering lower no closing cost refis. If you can get a rate uh, half point lower of what you have now and pay little to no closing costs, 
then it's a no-brainer and you do it. Now, Joel, I think you said going into a 30-year refi of an existing 30-year loan. Yeah, that's right. I would really like for you to look, if you could possibly afford the payments at a 15-year, then the rate is going to be substantially lower. You're going to be down likely a full point below where you are now, and you'll shave years off your loan instead of adding years back into your loan. And so the math for you going forward is incredibly favorable if you could actually swing the payment and get that much lower rate on a 15-year. But shop, shop, shop your loan. Kim? This is from Lou in South Carolina. Lou writes, I plan on starting a Roth IRA. Can I do it on my own or do I need to go through an investment company? Also, can my wife and I open up separate Roth IRAs? You have to open separate. A Roth is uh, to the individual. So you each can open one and you can open one for, depending on where you go, for as little as a dollar. You do have to go to a financial house to do it. The maximum you can contribute is $6,000 in a year, or if you're over age 50, 7000 bucks in a year. And what I like for people to do is figure out how much you can afford to put in a Roth each year, divide that by 12, and automatically, regularly put that amount in every month. I like for you to go to one of the low-cost companies, and I have recommendations about what I'd like you to invest in for most people, just a straight target retirement fund for the year closest to when you're going to retire. And I like those. I like you to look at the really inexpensive, no commission companies. And on my list, you'll see that and what the advantages are of each of them. When you have a question for me, go to clark.com ask and post it. Producer Joel has a question right now that you've posted. Yeah, Clark, this one's from Chris in Washington. He says, my wife and I just bought our first home. We each have a credit card with airline rewards, but after learning about other options like the Fidelity or City 2% cashback cards, we'd like to open up one of these as well for each of us. We keep our current cards. We would keep our current cards and add these as a second for both of us. We were told not to open an additional card during the mortgage process, but now that the home has closed, would there be any any issues with getting a new card now? No. In fact, it's a great idea now. Um, initially, when you get a new card, the hard inquiry on your credit will lower your score for a short while by a dozen or a couple of dozen points. It'll have an impact that affecting getting a mortgage application done could be a severe long-term cost over 30 years. Now that that's done, you are in good shape, green-lighted, to go for one of the 2% cashback cards. And that is a growing space. You may have heard me say, you know, PayPal has it, the city, Fidelity Investments. And then there's a credit union that has a very different kind of card that pays 2.5% cashback, but with a very high annual fee. And I only recommend that to people who charge everything they possibly can in their lives on credit and do massive amounts of charges. Most typically, that'll be a business owner who's running up big, big charges. Kim? This is from Janice in Georgia. She says, I currently retired at age 66, and due to the virus, all of my investment funds have lost quite a bit of money. Should I continue to hold fast? I fear that 
there's going to be no way to recover if all of my savings are lost. I am really, really sorry to hear that. And the answer to that is that I think it would be really helpful to you right now to pay someone to get guidance on what your plan is moving forward. There's a group called Garrett Planning Network that you can pay by the hour. You won't need much time with a professional to guide you on where they think you should go next with what you've got. If you go to GarrettPlanningNetwork.com, put in your zip code, interview people first who show up near you, and figure out who you feel most comfortable getting that guidance about how you deal with this time of uncertainty. Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. And for a couple of months, we have not done Clark Stinks. And we did a Clark Stinks a week ago. Now suddenly we got a lot more popularity for Clark Stinks. So we're going to do it again in just a second. If you're not familiar with Clark Stinks, you know, I'm just a guy. Uh, you hear my opinion. You hear what I feel is the right answer to things. There are times you'll feel my answer is incomplete inaccurate or I just have like a thick head and so I need to hear from you because this is different than a normal talk show it's not about me having the last word it's about me and you together all coming up with the best answers to help each other and if I'm missing the mark in your opinion I want to know it and so you go to clark.com slash clark stinks you post where you're angry at me or you disagree with me or you feel I disappointed you. Others can read it, comment on it, agree, disagree with you. And then right here on Clark Stinks, you get to hear our show version of your comments you posted online. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. And here with Clark Stinks is Kim reading your posts. All right, Clark, today we are going to start with one of a, a few different topics that we've got in multiples on. So this was a very, very popular topic. Clark, you really stunk it up in your soundproof and hopefully very airtight work from home space last week. I've been a listener of yours for over 10 years and I've never heard you so unbalanced on a topic. Please explain in more depth your one-sidedness in almost back-to-back -back answers that you gave. In one answer, you explained how homeowners can put off their mortgage payment for up to six months through forbearance. Then, in another answer concerning renters, you didn't offer any help towards renters and basically suggested that if unemployment is not coming through, they should probably be evicted. Quote, you're not running a charity. I realize that you didn't write the unbalanced laws, but come on, Clark, you could have at least spent a few moments talking about how messed up it is that homeowners get relief while renters don't. I know you would agree that it's a gigantic advantage to be able to postpone six months of mortgage payments. At least suggesting how there should be an equivalent remedy for renters would have probably been more tactful than just saying they probably need to be evicted. Jeesh. So thank you for that post. And, you know, I've taken many questions from people who were tenants. 
and want to know what they should be doing. And by the way, there's new data out during the month of May. The number of people who have not paid rent was amazingly low. And I think it's because of the uptake of people now receiving unemployment compensation who lost their jobs. The percent of people who did not pay rent in May is somewhere between 8 and 9%, which is uh, better than it was in April, where there was a very high percent of people who did not pay rent. In the case of the conflict you're talking about, the second post, the second question was about an individual who is a landlord. And I was talking about the difficulties for the roughly half of rental properties in the United States that are in the hands of an individual or a mom and pop operator, and they stand the chance of foreclosure if they're not receiving rent. And so this is a very difficult thing. And you may not have heard my explanation prior why Congress designed protections, likely designed protections for mortgage holders, more borrowers, but not for renters. And I think it's because the members of the House and the Senate are generally very wealthy people. They really can't relate to the troubles that someone who rents would have. And that's why they only thought in terms of home buyers. And that's just a guess on my part. The lack of sensitivity you heard and felt, I apologize for it. I was in a narrow focus at that point talking about the issues facing the landlord versus not really talking about the issues facing the tenant. And now Joel. Yeah, Clark. So Karen says, up until today, you're one of my favorite radio hosts, but you have drunk the Kool-Aid with your support of contact tracing apps. As far as I'm concerned, I want no part of the electronic monitoring that will be contact tracing. No, thank you. I will leave my phone at home before I allow Google or Apple or Uncle Sam to follow me around. It's sad that you're encouraging this when it's a blatant opportunity for abuse. Contact tracing may have deep roots in epidemiology, but electronic monitoring is a very slippery slope. And you are joined by the overwhelming majority of your Amer- your fellow Americans who are completely turned off by the idea of electronic tracing of people who may have been exposed to coronavirus. It's the most efficient way to do it, but because it's going to fail in the United States because so many people are fearful of electronic tracing of people who've been exposed We're going to do it the old-fashioned way. States are hiring contact tracers in very large numbers, and it is actually a job opportunity we talked about on the show is that this is a potential way to find employment and that we're doing it the old gumshoe kind of way where once someone has uh, been found to have coronavirus, they will manually be contacted, find out who they've been near in the last two weeks, and then those individuals will be contacted telling them that they are at risk of coronavirus and at risk of infecting other people. So you speak for the vast majority of your fellow Americans that do fear that electronic intrusion. Kim? This is from Jerry. He says, Clark, I never thought I would ever, ever post to Clark Stinks, but I think your recent piece about Facebook deleting erroneous posts needs clarification. I'm sure there are many crazy people posting all sorts of crazy things, but Facebook and YouTube are deleting content that they deem false. 
They have become the media police, and this is scary. I know from personal experience that they are deleting messages from licensed medical professionals who have an alternative view on COVID-19. Facebook is determining what we should see and hear. We are adults. Critical thinking should never be suppressed. Please don't support this. Thank you. And it's always a difficult process to be the editor. If you think about, um, I've been a newspaper columnist for 30 years now, and I've had tussles with editors from time to time in the past about content. I had a, a big disagreement at a point last year about content I had written. And in this case, we are not being paid. We're not hired to work for these social media outlets. And so it is something that people are feeling their way on. And Facebook has had a very, very hard time for years figuring out what ex actually is their proper role in doing things to edit content to make sure that inflammatory things that are false are not spread, or in this case, that false information is put out that might put people at risk. And so I don't know the exact right way to do that. And so far, no, there's no one in social media who really does. But I do think it's important that people not see crazy kind of weirdo posts out there that somebody may take seriously and end up harming their health or their lives. And so if you have a better way to do that, I'd love it because a lot of people take what they read as fact, even when it's not. Joel? Clark Joe says, I love Costco just like you. However, I've looked at their SEC filings and to say they run at a break-even basis setting aside the membership fees seems to be false. It's a little more nuanced, but the theme of how they don't mark up certain uh, over a certain percentage seems to be mythical. I'll state it simply. Where in writing is it evidenced that they don't mark up items over a certain point, Clark? It's. Uh, I think you'd find it in their SEC filings, but what they have said in, you know, I've done a number of interviews with executives at Costco on the TV side of my, my life. And the markup is 14% capped on brand name items, 15% on their private label Kirkland signature. And if they have changed that and I'm out of date, then that's something I should know, but I'm not aware of any change that's happened with their pricing formula. It's really, really unusual. And I know a lot of Wall Street analysts thought that Costco would be just destroyed by online sellers like Amazon. And Costco instead has steadily gotten stronger over the years. And I think it's because of the pricing discipline that they follow that consistently has Costco is pretty much the cheapest place you can shop. Kim? This is from Sarah. She says, what is that smell? That's the smell of the dumpster fire that Clark set with his comment on working from home exclusively and the fact that he thinks it would prevent you from climbing the corporate ladder. I totally disagree. And I want to place a shout out to the software company Kronos that I work for and have been working for from home 
since 2011. About 75% of our staff works from home from around the world, and I've witnessed plenty of advancement in our professional services area. My boss is a fine example of not having traditional FaceTime with senior leadership, and she has moved up well in her 15-plus year career. When I met her, she was working the sales side. She then moved over to managing our group, and now she is the director of all user adoption services. I am very lucky to work for a tech company that has so many women in leadership positions. Please do not let this myth Clark stated deter anyone from seeking a remote job. I recommend looking at places like Glassdoor and LinkedIn to get an idea of which companies truly embrace a work-from-home mindset. That's a very, very thoughtful post. Now, in the post, she said 75% of yeah. people work remotely. Yep, from so, around the world. Yeah, so that's an unusually high percent. That's a culture that's based on remote work. I, I was thinking in terms of the typical work environment where a very small percent of labor hours is done remotely, that I think that people who end up working virtually full-time remotely outside of this coronavirus era because of human nature being what it is at most organizations will find that their career growth is stunted because they're not visible and present in an office when most other people are. In the case of where you work with it being a very forward-thinking company with three-quarters of people historically working remotely, the culture would be different in terms of how people interact, and how people get promoted. I appreciate that post, though. Joel? Clark Bryan says, you don't stink, but you smell bad for a while this day. Recently, a listener asked about what value they should insure their house for. Part of your answer was that they could buy a similar house. Part of your answer was what they could buy a similar house for in the neighborhood. You completely left out that they should subtract the value of the land and, if applicable, the concrete slab foundation. My lot is worth about twice as much as my structure, so it would be idiotic and wasteful to insure for what I would pay for a similar home in the neighborhood. That is a very, very good post. And your situation where the land is worth appreciably more than the structure on it is unusual, but that is a very valid point. My experience is that when people have suffered a catastrophic loss of a fire or something like that at their home, that they turn out for rebuilding purposes to be substantially underinsured and end up with out-of-pocket costs. So I always like to err on the side of having your home valued for more for rebuilding purposes than for too little where you could end up with great exposure coming out of your wallet for a long time to come. I appreciate all your posts. Please remember that when you feel I have lost my mind, whatever it is, please go to Clark.com slash Clark Stinks and post away. If you have a question for me, please go to Clark.com slash ask and post it. And Joel, you're up. Clark, Jim in Texas says, I love the podcast, love listening while I walk. My question is, now that I'm working from home, isn't it reasonable to ask my employer for expenses such as internet usage, electricity, and general wear and tear of my home computer? My job is very stable and I'm required to use my computer to be logged in for eight hours. Using my equipment and electricity has to amount for something though, right? So the electricity, not very much, but your internet connection and the computer you're using, I understand that companies should be giving some form of an allowance. 
You know, the companies locked us out, told us where we had to work, and we've had to spend money in order to serve them. A lot of companies have been specifically issuing company computers that they know are going to be safe to use. They may be requiring you use a, a company virtual private network. So that eliminates the cost of the hardware. In your case, you're using your own computer, and that's an expense that you should be reimbursed for in some way. The Internet connection as well. You are using your own Internet connection for their benefit, and that is reasonable for you to expect some reimbursement for it. But as I've said before on this topic, a lot of employers are really worried about the company's future. They're trying to hold on to every penny. And you may find, and you got to know your own company culture before you say something about these expenses, you may find that the company mentality is, hey, look, you still have a job, and we're accommodating you working from home, forgetting the fact they told you you had to work from home. And so they may not be of good humor when you ask for reimbursements, but if your company culture supports it, it is perfectly reasonable for you to ask for an expense allowance or reimbursement of expenses. Kim? Rosalie in New York says, is there a way to get a refund from a cruise line after accepting the credit? Turns out I could really use the money instead. That is a great question, and that is completely up to the cruise line if once you've accepted a credit, if they would then turn around and change it back to having a refund. The cruise lines are trying to hoard every penny they can, that none of them are actually based in the United States, even though they have their corporate offices in the United States. So it is really up to them how they're going to behave to you. And you might get different answers from different people. I would call. It's easier to get through to someone now at the cruise lines and ask to explain your circumstance and see if they will consider giving you a refund instead of the credit. This is the Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.